0: There is, I believe, a significant asymmetry between the role that positive mental states play in our lives and the role that negative states play. What I mean by this is I think that they differ uh, in how they contribute to the goodness or the badness of our lives. And so I think it's an asymmetry that a theory of welfare needs to, um, of prudential value to address. Uh, I use the term prudential value uh, just to refer to the kind of value at stake when we talk about what is good for an individual. So I take it to be the, the realm of value, the kind of value that we are concerned with when we do theories of well being or wealth. Okay. So my aim today, uh, viciously, is to uh, defend the existence of this asymmetry and make it intelligible by offering novel accounts of the nature of happiness and suffering where I'm not using suffering to refer to this in any negative state. That was the, the you know, unhappiness that I took out. But suffering is reserved for the more extreme forms of negative experience. So I'm first going to clarify the nature of the asymmetry that I'm proposing, um, and we contrast it with the more familiar uh, version of asymmetry some people will know. Then I'm going to present uh, the psychological side of my project my account of the nature of happiness and of suffering. And then finally, I'm going to switch gears a little and argue for a thesis that I've argued for elsewhere as well, but I'll try and make it clear here. And for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to call it the fit thesis. And when you put these elements together, I think you'll be able to see that I get something like the asymmetry that I want to defend. So that's just the roadmap of where we're going. All right. So I think it's helpful to begin by contrasting my claims about asymmetry with a more familiar philosophical debate. So utilitarians and their critics, or I should say those utilitarians who accept the importance for welfare of mental states, sometimes debate or have debated whether happiness and suffering are morally symmetrical. What does that mean? Well, as we all know, utilitarians assume that although happiness and suffering are oppositely valued, both kinds of mental experience are measurable in virtue of the same features. Thus, not only can we speak meaningfully about amounts of happiness and amounts of suffering, but they think we can make sense of the idea of an amount of happiness equal in amount, though oppositely valued, to an amount of suffering. And critics have noted that there's some counterintuitive results that can follow from this. Okay. So imagine that you face a choice to illustrate that. You could either produce X amount of happiness for Onyga, or you could prevent X amount of suffering for Govan. Now since the prevention of something negative counts as a positive, the welfare value of either action is going to be the same Thus, a utilitarian concerned simply with maximizing the outcome, welfare outcome of his actions, would have to conclude that either choice is as good as the other. So, morally speaking, one might as well flip a coin. That's the symmetry that critics, uh, and myself included, find counterintuitive. But it seems much more important. I mean, it depends on lots of things, but usually it seems much more important to prevent suffering than to produce happiness. Obviously, you should help go through. Now, although this asymmetry intuition is widely shared, there are many ways to explain it. There are maybe several things going on that fuel our intuitions in these cases. Although it's typically described as a moral asymmetry, I'm going to assume here that the moral asymmetry flows from a more basic prudential asymmetry, an asymmetry in the basic structure of prudential value. Now even with this assumption, there's still a variety of ways to be an asymmetrist. One recent defender of asymmetry, Jamie Mayerfeld, argues that although happiness and suffering can be measured in much the way that classical utilitarians have claimed, the prudential weight or disvalue of an amount of suffering is much greater than the positive prudential weight of a similar amount of happiness. Now, that might be right. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I think about that. But I don't think that that is all that is going on, and it's not the particular form of asymmetry I want to defend. There is a further issue here, which which interests me, and seems not to have occurred to some others, um, and which I think can be brought out this way. Consider the fact that the classical utilitarians were hedonists, and so of course, they're pure mental state theorists. On their account, the only things that can contribute directly to welfare are mental states. But while I certainly think that mental states, like happiness and suffering, are incredibly prudentially important, like many people these days, I'm not a pure mental statist. Thus, I'm interested not only in how (coughs) suffering relates to happiness, but in how both relate to other non-mental welfare goods. And so reflection on these matters has led me to adopt a form of asymmetry that's quite different from Mayerfeld. And the contrast can be brought out in terms of the notion of compensation. So at one point, um, Mayerfeld asks, how much, ah, didn't. Stick to mine. cues here, sorry. At one point, Merifeld asks us how much happiness it would take to compensate an individual person for a certain amount of suffering. Now, of course, since he is an asymmetrist, he maintains that X amount of suffering followed in a person's life by an X amount of happiness, he thinks it's not going to be a case of coming out prudentially even. The happiness, though it's theoretically the same in quantity, does not prudentially compensate a person for her suffering, it would take much, much more happiness <coughs> to that. Now, as he frames it, it's a question about prudential value over time. But of course, if you're a non-mental status, there is another question in this region that you could ask. You could ask, what would compensate for X amount of suffering during the very period of the suffering itself. Now, I think we can't answer that in terms of happiness because the happiness can't coexist at the same time with suffering. But it might be possible for other um, non-mental prudential goods to compensate for the suffering, even at the time the suffering occurs. What then would it take to compensate an individual prudentially for her suffering such that during the very time that she suffers, you would say that her life goes well overall? Is that even possible? I think it's not possible. Moreover, that strikes me as being a really interesting fact. It does seem possible for other things to contribute positively or negatively to a life during a time when a person is happy. So that strikes me as kind of unique. So here's where my departure from traditional discussions of asymmetry occurs. So my claim is not that purportedly equal amounts of happiness and suffering nonetheless have different evaluative weight. I'm not sure what I think about that. But instead, I want to argue that happiness has a very different relationship to the non-mental components of welfare than suffering does. Suffering, when it occurs, dominates the prudential field. So it's Making it impossible for other things to even count. Although this is a thesis about prudential value, it still has the potential, I hope, to explain some moral asymmetries. But that's a topic for another time. <coughs> All right. So to get a better grip uh, on what happiness and suffering are, I think we need to locate them in a picture of mind, and I'm just going to put one—the one I'm thinking in these days—out here. I propose to adopt a dual-process picture of the mind, according to which the mind has two semi-independent systems of thought. Uh, so one system, system one as it's come to be called, uh, is extremely fast, its processes is largely unconscious, and it's work involuntary. The other system, system two, is slower, more effortful, conscious, and voluntary. One of the primary roles of System 1 is to offer up to System 2 suggestions about what to believe, about whether to judge things positively or negatively, how to act, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one of the primary roles of System 2 is to monitor System 1 and, when necessary, uh, reject its poor suggestions. So, as I see it, the mental states that matter most from the standpoint of prudential value are affective states. Moreover, affect, as I'm thinking of it now, is a feature of system one, in the sense that system one assessments, or appraisals is a term some people like, um, which are largely unconscious, but not entirely, or not always, are the basis for emotional reactions. And they're also the basis for much of the spontaneous flow of conscious thought. Even when we're not caught in the grip of a particular emotional response, um, affect shapes, positively or negatively, our ongoing assist- assessments <laughs> that we have. And it's so it shapes, in many ways of which we're not always aware, our perceptions of the world. Now, what interests me are long-lasting uh, states that are rather m- like moods, although psychologists always object because they say moods last no more than a few hours. So I just gave up the term mood. So I'm going to call these broad affective states. Um, So they're longer lasting, or they can be, than that. Um, And what interests me is that I think that they can color positively or negatively the conscious experience of a person who's in such a state. And I think that broad affective states matter because they can shape in various ways what I'm going to call an individual's personal evaluative perspective. And that's my own little term of art here, <coughs> which I'm going to define. All individuals, I think, develop over time a sense of what matters to them, personally, the things, the people, the goals, etc. cetera, that they care about, and to what degree. And by emphasizing the personal, I mean to be distinguishing between the things we care about emotionally And those things we view as valuable or worthy in a broader but not so emotional sense. I think both forms of evaluation are important in various contexts. But here I'm concerned with the set of things that are most directly and strongly tied to an individual's capacities for emotional response. An individual's evaluative perspective is the psychological perspective her system one generates for her with respect to those things that personally matter to her. So it's her general overall sense of whether and to what degree the world is well disposed to her and her concerns. Now, System 1 generates this perspective in several ways. And what I'm going to say here is very truncated from what I have written. But (coughs) first, our minds ceaselessly track Consciously and unconsciously the things that concern us and they provide us with an updated sense of how things stand These a vis our own particular concerns. Second, not only do our minds track relevant information, but they tend to give it a valenced interpretation, positive or negative. So at times it will seem to us that the world is hospitable to our concerns, that things are bright, are hopeful, We will see possibilities. We will expect good outcomes. And at other times, the world seems dark and hostile. A person's evaluative outlook, then, is her basic sense of whether the world is well disposed to her and her concerns. Now, I think there are two significant roles that affect plays in this story about evaluative perspective. I think that affect directly shapes our sense of what matters. Right? It determines both how many things we see as having value and how much value we see these things as having. Positive affect inclines us to see more good in the world, and negative affect inclines us to see less. But second, affect shapes our value outlook by influencing many of the basic thoughts and assessments that we have about the things that concern us. So most of these low level judgments or assessments or appraisals are not in and of themselves evaluative because they're not judgments about the worth of something, but because they're positive or negative assessments of how things are going, these are the things that matter to us. They contribute to our evaluative perspective in the sense that they shape our sense of how good or bad the world is for us. Okay. That's a prelude to getting to my account of happiness. Now, this will be very short, considering how much ink has been spilled over the nature of happiness. You know, it's quite daunting to try to say something new, but here I go. Happiness. I wish to argue, is best thought of as a highly positive evaluative perspective. To be happy is to have an affectively shaped, highly positive psychological perspective on the things that matter most to you. So, I'm not going to be able to give arguments against other views, I'm just going to contrast them. I'm not claiming that happiness is pleasure in the way that sensory hedonists have claimed nor do I think it's a positive attitude towards your life, of which there are many variant theories out there that make it into some kind of positive attitude. Um, Such views are typically framed, I think, in terms of System 2 rational thought, even if that's only implicit to the account, whereas on my account, happiness is a System 1 mental phenomenon. Also, happiness on my account reflects a positive assessment of many particular things, but it doesn't have to or need never involve any explicit assessment of your life, either in whole or in part. It's just a positive assessment of many things that concern you. My view is closest to that of Dan if anyone's familiar with his view, who argues that happiness is an emotional state. However, on my view, happiness, though it is certainly shaped by and uh, depends on affect, isn't completely reducible to affect. So a description of a happy person may help to make this clear. She's someone whose system one assessments of how things are going are mostly positive. She thus believes, with respect to the things that she personally most cares about, that all is well. Some of these assessments are conscious, but many are largely unconscious. Nonetheless, even views that we rarely make explicit to ourselves can have positive results for our conscious life because they free up our mind to focus on other things. To say that a person is happy does not mean, of course, that she never notices anything negative or never has any negative feelings, but the negative things she observes or takes note of are either not that important to her. Now her daughter forgot to put the peanut butter away again, it's not a big deal. Or they are very serious, but they're not such as to personally touch her. She recognizes their badness in a more less uh, emotionally charged sense. For example, she was saddened today by the news of an elderly neighbor who she didn't know very well personally passing away. Or she was troubled again by news of fighting in some distant part of the world. Her conscious stream of thought is largely positive, and she's inclined to expect good outcomes most of the time, not to dwell too much on what she cannot control. She feels she has options, multiple ways of responding to whatever life brings her way, and she's simply inclined to like many things. She finds goodness in the world uh, of various sorts. So happiness, so described, is not any one mental state, but is rather a complex pattern of mental life sustained over time. Now, as I was describing it, I think there are two things that are contributing to happiness. So there's a person's awareness of the world and her resultant sense of how well things are going, her perception of facts about her life uh, and about the objects of her concern. And then there is affect, which in a minimal case, is going to explain her positive reception of good facts, of good knowledge, and her tendency to see goodness in things and expect good outcomes, see possibilities, etc. Um, but there is more than one way for happiness to arise corresponding to different more or less involvement of affect, as I'll explain. So in one kind of case, which I think of as the more normal sort of case. Happiness can coexist with an accurate sense of reality. So, a person may be well attuned to how things are in the world. And since the truth is that things are going well for her, uh, and she knows this, this contributes to her happiness. To count as happy, she must also have positive affect. But in this sort of case, affect is a kind of rosy overlay um, that, of, of a basically correct perception of how things are and inclines her to think about the future in positive ways, to see possibilities, etc. But a large part of the happiness derives simply from the fact that things are indeed going well, and she recognizes this. Alternatively, happiness can sometimes be almost entirely the product of affect. And of course, there are degrees in between, right? But I'll go to the extreme case now. Sometimes an individual can lose touch with reality Um, The case of mania can provide an example of the most extreme form of this possibility. People who have experienced manic episodes almost invariably describe a period, it's not the whole thing, but a period in which everything seems to be going exceptionally well, as they later realize a little too well. Um, So they feel capable of heroic deeds, genius level work, they feel energized and strong, they are absolutely certain of success in everything seems possible. Sounds great, doesn't it? Um, here, affect seems to take over, right? Um, it's actually distorting their sense of what is happening. Um, I don't think that such states have the same kind of prudential value for individuals that um, purer forms of happiness have, but I still think it's correct to describe that as a form of happiness because it's definitely an instance of occupying a positive, evaluative perspective. Now, I think happiness has prudential value of different sorts. It has intrinsic value simply in virtue of the fact of what it's like to be happy. Happiness involves seeing goodness in the world. And I think this is something I'd like to explore more in later work, but I think this is really an important point. We are, I think, evaluative creatures. and we seek value and see value of all different kinds and sorts. Thus, I think it's natural to say that part of what is good for us is being in a position where we see goodness in the world. Happiness um, is such a state, and therefore um, it's good for that reason. It also has instrumental value insofar as it tends to make us much better at pursuing our goals, developing our relationships, And so happiness, as many people have noted, tends to beget good events, which in turn tend to beget more happiness. Since I believe that non-mental goods can also contribute to welfare, I'm deeply interested in this aspect of happiness. For when a person is happy, she both has a thing of great intrinsic value, and at least in the case where her happiness is not the product of a completely distorted picture. Mania might not count here, but at least in most cases, she's also in possession of something likely to help her acquire the other components of well being. Now, I, I've left out unhappiness for this talk, for save time. Um, I want to now flip to thinking about the more extreme forms of negative experience, which all too often have not been discussed as much by philosophers as perhaps they should be. So I'm going to talk about suffering. Suffering, on my view, is an extremely negative evaluative perspective, one in which the individual sees little or no goodness. Now that last point is important simply because by a negative evaluative perspective, I mean that it lacks positivity. And there's two ways it could lack positivity, right? It could be one in which many things actually strike you as bad in some sense, um, but it could also be one in which things generally seem lacking in value of any kind, altogether. Uh, and I leave room for that possibility because uh, many people, for example, who are in extreme forms of depression, people often describe their perspective that way as being evaluatively flat. So I also want to distinguish suffering. It should be, since I, the way I've defined it, it should be clear, but I distinguish suffering Uh, from pain, though pain is an important thing, um, many things can cause suffering, pain being one of the big uh, contributors there, but I don't think it's the same thing. I think that uh, suffering can cause pain, uh, but there can be suffering without pain, and there can be, though probably not as common, pain without suffering. Okay. So, a person who suffers sees little or nothing that is good. And as with happiness, this may be because there's little goodness to perceive, or it may be that something about the experience of the person is making it impossible for her to see goodness that is in some sense there. So sometimes, as we know, the world is simply cruel. Um, Imagine a person for whom all that seemed most significant has been lost or abolished, trampled, and imagine that this person knows this. In addition to her truthful perception of her awful reality, she experiences deeply negative affect that leaves her feeling that nothing ever again will be good, or that she has no options for improving her life. Her ability to see goodness in even the small things in life has been extinguished or greatly diminished. One can imagine that those experiencing extreme grief, those who have lost the people they love most, suffer in this way. Alternatively, sometimes affect takes over and creates suffering that's not grounded in the same way in real events of the world. Though it's worth mentioning that once started, once the suffering is created, it may then cause bad things to happen. Extreme clinical depression is the example I have in mind for this. In a case like that, the mind actually disrupts reality, and the individual thinks that things are bad, whether or not they are. She also, like the person experiencing a grief, finds herself doubtful that future things will turn out well, and she sees no possibilities for improvement. Very little strikes her as good. As with the first case, this person finds herself with an extremely negative affective perspective. The only difference is that here, the perspective is much more a result of pure affective forces than the result of a cruel world. Like happiness, I think suffering is both intrinsically and instrumentally bad. It's intrinsically bad to occupy such a perspective, however one arrives at it.
1: But it is also
0: true that people in the grip of such a perspective are unable to do much that's positive for themselves, and so they find it quite difficult to improve their situation. The distorted form of suffering, characteristic of depression, is instrumentally worse. For when your vision of things is distorted, it's very hard to operate effectively to improve things. Moreover, a negative vision tends to work in subtle ways to make itself true. So just as happiness begets happiness, depression begets negative events, which in turn beget more depression. All right. Take a quick sip. That is my philosophical psychology part. Now I'm going to flip gears to a slightly different aspect of the paper, which we'll then try to pull together. So I'm going to talk about something now um, that I'm going to call the fit principle. Um, So so far, I've offered the account of happiness and, and argued that happiness has intrinsic credential value. And similarly, I've offered an account of suffering and argued that it has intrinsic disvalue. I now want to focus on a different aspect. <coughs> I'm going to introduce and defend what, what I call the FIT principle. So I'm going to begin with just very general motivation for this idea. It's a commonplace among theorists of welfare, I think people generally, that prudential value is highly relative. It's individually relative. Right? What's good for one person may be very different from what is good for another. Goodness facts seem to depend on complex facts about what an individual is like, as well as how her features relate to her environment and her circumstances. So if it's good for Mina to study economics, that may be because she likes it and has a natural talent for it. And that the same is not true for Malika may reflect the fact that she doesn't love it nearly as much. And she has other talents, the development of which would make more sense for her. In short, our discussions of good and our recognition of the relativity of goodness seems premised on the idea that goodness requires a kind of fit between the person and her world that's highly individual. So that's the very general motivation. Now, much more specifically, I think I wish to introduce the further idea that fit needs to be spelled out in a way that's at least partly psychological. Right? So the intuitions that point in this direction, I think, are fairly easy to sum up. Um, I'm going to use as my example a case from a paper by Peter Railton of Beth, the accountant. Beth quits her job in accounting uh, after many years of hoping to do so to try to become a writer. Although writing has been her dream for quite some time, when Beth quits, she soon begins to feel that she's perhaps not cut out for the writing life, She finds it incredibly hard to work in a disciplined way. She doesn't know how to handle the criticism that she receives of her work, and she just finds it impossible to really be productive. And so she finds that the writing life makes her miserable, and eventually she gives up and returns to accounting with relief. Now the story that I just told, I think is a story about lack of fit. And fit in this case is at least partly psychological. For we have the intuition that the writing life is not good for Beth, and key to that is the fact that it makes her so unhappy. Indeed, we think we would doubt the goodness, I think we would doubt the goodness of the writing life for Beth, even if it just left her utterly flat, utterly indifferent. But our intuitions would be different if we were told that Beth responded well to her new life. So this suggests to me that there's probably a necessary psychological requirement on individual goodness. I think it's way too strong to say that something can only count as good if it makes a person happy. I and mean, for one reason I've given an account of happiness such that probably no one thing makes you happy. But um, I also think that as normally understood, that's too an Other people tend to understand that in ways that probably I don't want to go in that direction. But it does seem to be true, I think, that it must produce some kind of positive response. Since misery and indifference seem indicative of a complete lack of such response, that's why I would take these, I think, to be signs that something is definitely not good. So reflection on these kinds of issues has led me to endorse the following very general principle. And this is a development of a principle I've defended elsewhere. I keep kind of refining it. I'm sure you'll all help me refine it further. Um, so it says here, a necessary condition on X's being good for A at time, T1, is that A have a positive affective response to X at that time, if aware of X at that time, or be so disposed at that time that she would have a positive affective response If she were aware of X at T1. Now I'm going to just briefly, the the last part of the principle is designed to ensure that we don't get caught up um, in that I'm not reinstating an experience requirement, as Griffin would say. So um, it's designed so as not to build in an experience requirement, it's intending to leave room for the idea that something might be good for a person, even though she's not aware of it. But what I am trying to go for um, is a certain kind of psychological fit between the person's affective responses at a time and the thing that is good. So the plausibility of the principle depends on, among other things, just what I mean by positive affective response. Now, I think my account will make more sense Um, if I identify some extremes or some cases that I'm trying to avoid in filling out the kind of response necessary here. On the one hand, I don't want to suggest that in order for something to be good for you, uh, you must explicitly think that it has value of some sort. Nor do I want to claim that you must have other kinds of positive thoughts about it. I mean, you might have such thoughts. Um, If Beth had had a better relationship with writing, then such thoughts might have been part of it. But we can also imagine cases in which someone flourishes as a writer um, despite never explicitly thinking about what's good about writing. Moreover, since writing might be good for such a person over a certain amount of time, um, we also wouldn't want to say that such thoughts are required at all times, that it's good. now, at the other extreme, I don't want to explicate the notion of fit in terms of sensory feelings, like pleasure. If pleasure is understood that way, although there are many ways people have tried to it. Again, I think there might be times when a writer really enjoys her writing and even feels pleasure. Um, but I don't think that such experiences are necessary in order for. Uh, writing to be good for someone. Um, think, for example, of discussions of the concept of flow, where people sort of forget what they're doing, and they're not really, um, you know, they may not really be experiencing pleasure, but they're caught up in something. They have a certain kind of relationship to their work. So those are the extremes. So then what do I say here? Well, it seems to me that what's required is something at the level of affect, which, again, following what I said earlier, can be described as something at the level of system one thought. What seems required is that someone find writing appealing, as I'll put it, at least much of the time. Moreover, finding something appealing I don't think is the same as thinking that it is appealing. Um, No such explicit thought is required. Rather, in virtue of certain features of the way the experience is going, your mental relationship or this person's mental relationship to writing, to continue my example, changes. She's more inclined to want to write again, more attentive to the details of writing that she was not attentive to before. Uh, Outside awareness, the mind is creating positive associations between writing and other things that she likes, um, and between writing and good moods. So next time she writes to stimulate good, good mood. Much that defines her positive psychological relationship with writing may occur on the edges of consciousness. But certainly if her attention were drawn to it, she would no doubt recognize that her reaction to writing is positive, but she might not be able to tell you much more than that. My claim is simply that having some such affective response to something is necessary, but I am not claiming it's sufficient, for it's counting as prudentially good. Okay, so that's the fit principle. Now, um, the most common objections to this idea stem from things people, confusions that I think exist in the way we talk about good. There are various kinds of claims people want to make. So I think we will need, if I'm to convince you at all of the plausibility of the fit principle, to make some distinctions. Minimally, I think we need to distinguish between um, what I'm calling good in the basic sense, which is uh, goods that are intrinsically good for a person, and good choices that people make, and good lives. Without that, there are going to be many, many counterexamples. <laughs> we sometimes say of someone who is first learning to write, but who's not yet at all feeling it, as we might say, that it's nonetheless good for her. Um, or we might say that it is good for someone who is depressed to get treatment. And in these cases, there's no positive affective response. Um, but this claim, at least on the surface, seems to be the, a claim about goodness. And it seems to be the claim that the thing is good now. I don't think, so that would seem to be counter examples, um, but I don't think they really are. So during the course of a life, a person will hopefully realize many prudential goods, what I call goods in the basic sense. I think that a life is good in virtue of the more basic prudential goods it contains. And I think that a choice can often be good because it is instrumental uh, to obtain the basic good, Um, or because it may lead to a different life path, one that will likely contain much more basic good. So for example, it might be true of our inexperienced writer that she has the temperament and the talents that would enable her to be a good writer and that she would flourish if she developed these talents. On my account, you can't say that writing is good for her in the basic sense now, but it may well be that if she sticks with it long enough, it could be part of an overall good life for her. And if that's true, then right now, it can be a good choice to persist in learning to write. I'm inclined to say something similar in the case of the depressed person, for whom we want to say that it's good to get treatment. Literally, if you take my view seriously, then treatment, in one sense, is not good for her now, in the sense of basic intrinsic good. Given her current depression, she has no positive affective relationship with much of anything. Um, nonetheless, it's good for her to seek treatment now in the sense that it's a good choice. For if she seeks treatment, it will likely work, and there are possible lives open to her that are rich and prudential goods that she can only realize if she gets out of this depressed state. So what makes the choice good is that it moves her into a position to realize such a life. Alright, so I'm almost out of time, so I'm just going to quickly try and pull some threads together here. I think that the depression example in particular offers a good way back to the original topic of happiness, suffering, and asymmetry. So one implication of my principle of fit is that conditions that affectively disable people also cut them off from the world of basic prudential value. For my principle, of recall, requires that if something is good for a person at a time, she must be capable of responding positively to it at that time. And this is precisely what the depressed person cannot do. Now, it can still be true of such people that certain choices would be good for them, but this is because those choices would lead them out of their affectively disabled condition. So given my account of what suffering is, it follows that in most cases of suffering, those who suffer cannot, at the time of their suffering, realize basic prudential goods. Nothing is therefore uh, intrinsically good for them, but the suffering, of course, is intrinsically bad for them. There's nothing more to what we can say about the level of their welfare at that time than just an of suffering and its disvalued. Um, And so this helps to explain the asymmetry that we started out with. Um, When a person is happy she has something of positive intrinsic value in her life, uh, the happiness, and at least if her happiness is not simply the product of some kind of distortion, she has other non-mental things that contribute to her welfare as well. And this is possible because she can develop positive, affective relationships to things. When a person suffers, she has something deeply, intrinsically bad in her life. Moreover, there is, at least at that time, nothing else that is directly good for her, though there are good choices she could make. When a person suffers, her welfare just is a product of her mental state. And so her life at that time is simply as bad as the suffering One final way of thinking about the view um, is that in a certain way, my asymmetry results in my being a pure mental statist, but only about Um, (laughs) ill-being. So, but not about well. All right, I will stop there. I'm sure there's there's a lot of complexity, and so there'll surely be lots of good questions. Thank you.
1: Some, some comments, some questions? No? Jack, was it here? You may. Mm-hmm. let see what happens up there. Oh, good. <laughs> 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 Not so good. You can watch cartoons while I talk. Okay, well... Uh, I, I thought that Jenny's paper is really thought-provoking. Provoked a lot of thoughts for me. Um, unfortunately, uh, many of them didn't really go anywhere, and that's my fault. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I won't, I think, fill my full fifteen minutes. Uh, uh, leave more time for discussion. <coughs> Jenny uh, offers an account of happiness, an account of suffering. Argues that there's a particular kind of asymmetry between happiness and suffering, and also argues that there is a certain psychological condition on something's being good for a person. That's a, a summary. I'll I want to begin with the um, with the claims about asymmetry, and go on to. Uh, Discuss very briefly the claim about the psychological condition on something's being good for a person. I'll conclude by returning to an alternative, close-by suggested asymmetry that I'm, you can see what you think about. Uh, I, I have no idea what to think about it myself. I should say first of all that um, I find the asymmetry in uh, Jamie Meyerfeld's work that uh, Jenny refers to. Uh, strange. It's the idea that we can measure happiness and suffering, or you know, I don't know whether he has broader concepts than those two. And I'm not sure exactly what he means by those those two concepts. Uh, I read his book, but it was a very it was in manuscript, and I've forgotten it. Um, but the, his claim is that we can have equal amounts of happiness and suffering, or what's good for and what's bad for a person, more generally, perhaps, and even though they are prudentially equivalent, we nevertheless have a stronger prudential reason to avoid the suffering than we have to uh, try to obtain the good. Um, And that seems to me to suggest that if we faced a series of trade-offs where I, I, could be, I would be offered a little bit more happiness for the sake of going through some lesser suffering, I should, prudentially, I ought to reject all of these trade-offs so that at every instance I'd be making my life go worse and worse, and that's what I prudentially ought to do, and that seems to me odd. Uh, I mean there may be a way uh, in which uh, someone who holds that kind of view could avoid that implication, but uh, it seems to me uh, at least superficially plausible to suppose that it has that uh, unhappy implication. Now for Jenny, um, happiness and suffering are experiential states. And she thinks that there's an asymmetry in the way that they relate to Other experiential states and in particular to uh, what she calls non-mental goods and perhaps uh, bad bad states as well or I'll say uh, non-mental elements of well-being or welfare. Here's what Jenny says, she says, when a person is happy other non-mental things can contribute to her welfare as well. So happiness is compatible with Um, non-mental things affecting her welfare. I take it there that things could refer to good things or bad things. But on her view, and this is the essence of the asymmetry, suffering is different. It excludes both happiness and non-mental goods. Again, I'm quoting, when a person suffers, her welfare just is dependent on her mental states. And so her life at that time is just as bad as her suffering. That was the penultimate part of, uh, just about the penultimate sentence of the uh, oral presentation. And thus, she says, I'm quoting again, happiness cannot coexist at the same time with suffering. And also, non-mental goods can't coexist with suffering. That's why she said at the end that she's really a mental statist about, uh, uh, about negative, the negative uh, part of welfare. Uh, one question I had, I'm not going to really pursue this, um, is whether these claims are empirical or conceptual. That is, it might, uh, some of these claims might be conceptual. That is, a state isn't really suffering unless it in fact excludes the possibility of happiness. That might be one way of interpreting what she says, but then of course that would make the claim a little bit less interesting. Um, Okay, here's what Jenny says suffering is. or let me say she says of it that it includes the more extreme forms of negative experience, and that it is an extremely negative evaluative perspective, one in which the individual sees little or no goodness. Um, then that last claim actually, it's a, suffering is a state in which the individual sees little or no goodness might support the idea that, that, that some of these claims are actually conceptual claims rather than empirical claims. That if you're suffering you can't see any goodness and maybe that's why um, suffering isn't combinable with something that's good for a person. Uh, There's really, I think, no, no, I think there are no references in Ginny's paper to a familiar central and paradigm form of suffering, namely physical suffering. Uh, that's, I think, what a lot of us think of immediately when we think about what suffering is. Uh, we think that animals can suffer, we think of animals suffering physically. Um, but if we think about Physical suffering, it doesn't seem to me true to suppose that physical suffering is uncombinable with uh, happiness in the mental state sense or with uh, non-mental goods. Let me give you uh, an example uh, in, in which I think that suffering is combinable with happiness in the mental state sense. You imagine a person suffering. He's got a kidney stone. Oh, the little crystals are navigating their way down the um, whatever the ureters or whatever from the kidney to the bladder. Um, I've had that a few times. It, it, it induces a lot of suffering. But you can imagine that while this is happening, the person is kind of lying there groaning and gritting his teeth and so on, and suddenly he uh, discovers that the woman he has secretly loved for a long time actually loves him, and he experiences in the midst of this suffering a form of elation. I think those are combinable. I mean, I can't say that it's ever happened to me when, when <laughs> uh, I was having my kidney stone pain, but it, I'm, I'm guessing that it that it could. and. Um, that I would be susceptible to some sort of uh, experiential acknowledgement of my great good fortune if I had discovered this. Um, So that's that's intended to be a counterexample to the claim about the uncombinability of suffering with um, happiness. Let me now um, give an example of what I think uh, would constitute the combination of suffering with a non-mental element of well-being. Now, it's important to to realize um, that that Jenny says at several points, or said today at several points, that she accepts that there are non-mental goods. I began to think uh, of what an example of a non-mental good would be. I reached into the uh, objective list theory literature and found (coughs) the example of Great achievement. And let's take a case of great artistic achievement. It could be literary, it could be visual art, it could be musical. It doesn't matter. Um, And I want to suppose that a person, an artist, creates some great work of art, and. The suggestion that's made by the objective list theorist is that her having created this great work of art is an, an important achievement and that contributes to her good. That is good for her, it makes her life go better for her that, that she has created this work of art. Um, but suppose this artist has created this great work of art but is highly dissatisfied with it. That could be because... Um, She thinks that it fails to do justice to her real genius. She could do so much better that this is a contemptible effort that doesn't really fulfill her potential. Um, Or it might be that she mistakenly thinks that she's a desperately bad artist and that this terrible thing she has created shows this. She's somebody who who has uh, impossibly high standards for herself. And so she might believe that she's just worthless as an artist and that this work confirms it. She might, like Franz Kafka, if she's on her deathbed, ask her best friend to burn the thing or to destroy it. If she's lucky, like, her friend will be like Josef Broad and not do that, so that we have Kafka's works today. Um, she might suffer from this devastating sense of failure and die without ever having realized that she's created this great work of art. Nevertheless, I think um, that her creation of this work of art was good for her. This is something that we would point to in suggesting that uh, there was at least a, a, a dimension of her life, a part of her life that was actually good, and not just good for other people, but actually good for her. So those are suggested counterexamples to the two, two parts of the Claim there that uh, suffering is uncombinable with happiness and that suffering is uncombinable with uh, uh, non mental goods. Let me turn now to the uh, psychological necessary condition of something's being good for somebody. Now, as, as I mentioned, Jenny says there are non mental goods, so her notion of what's good for a person. Is broader than her notion of what happiness is. You just read her principle. I'll, I'll give my paraphrase of it. My paraphrase is for something to be good for a person at a time, the person must either have a positive, effective attitude toward it at that time if she's aware of it, or be disposed to have such an attitude toward it if she were to become aware of it. Um, what am I written here? All right, oh, I, I, now, I, now I see what I would scribbled there, It was that um, in uh, elaborating this principle um, towards the end of her talk, Jenny made a distinction between things that are good for a person in the basic sense and good, ch- good choices for a person and a good life for a person and so on. I was tempted just to think of all of that as reducible to the distinction between intrinsically good and instrumentally good. And so I would just rewrite the principle and say that it's a principle that applies only to intrinsic things that are intrinsically good for a person, not to things that are instrumentally good for a person. Now, um, I think my case of the miserable, self-doubting artist could also be a counterexample to this principle. As I've stated, the artist has a negative affective attitude towards her work of art and to her having produced it or created it. She's upset at having produced it. She wants to destroy it. We can suppose that this attitude colors her perception of much else in her life in the world. She thinks she's a failure. Um, But, in fact, the creation of this great work of art is a great good in her life. We might say that um, her having created this great work of art in some measure redeems what would otherwise be a fairly miserable life. If that's right then I think this is in fact a, 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 a counterexample to the psychological condition of something's being good for a person. And Another related point here is that I worry that this psychological condition on what it is for something to be good for a person, if 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 it's correct, is actually compatible with Jenny's acceptance of the idea that there are non-mental goods. It looks like she's saying here, in the principle, that anything that can be good for a person has to be such as to have a mental component to it. That is, it has to uh, uh, be productive of a positive affective attitude. Uh, and so the only thing I could think of as a way of avoiding this um, would be for Jenny to say um, would, for her to concede that there are no exclusively non-mental goods. That I think would be compatible with the uh, principle. Um, but it looks like she's saying that everything that's good for a person has to have a mental component to it. It can't be uh, something that's good for a person that doesn't have any uh, mental dimension to it. Okay, the final thing I was going to say is um, that reading Jenny's paper made me uh, think about the nature of po- the, some possible asymmetry between uh, suffering and happiness. Um, I imagine that there are probably quite a few possible asymmetries between happiness and suffering, some of which may well be uh, true. The one that seemed promising to me, that I haven't thought about it enough, is, is as follows, and you see what you think about it. My, my thought was that perhaps the concept of suffering has a greater subjective or mental component than the concept of happiness has. And um, the way to to see that is to to consider two people, one of whom uh, has a life that is, in its objective dimensions, going well, but the person doesn't realize this. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry, completely. I, I was doing the suffering one. Um, go back to <coughs> happiness now. Um, person first of all, whose life is going very badly uh, objectively, but she doesn't realize it, and thus is cheerful, seeing good in all things, and so on. It, 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 there's a real, there's a question there about whether such a person is 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 really happy. Whereas a person whose life is actually going very well, but doesn't realize it, so that her experiential state is one of great suffering, does seem to be somebody who really is badly off. This is somebody who really is miserable. But there's a doubt about whether the other person really is happy just because she's cheerful and has this positive affect and sees the good in things and so on. Uh, Another way of putting the point is to say that cheerfulness or even bliss doesn't make one's life good if one's life is objectively going badly apart from the uh, mental component. That the cheerfulness or the bliss or whatever in itself has very little power to outweigh the objectively bad dimensions of the life. But intense suffering does make one's life bad even when the other objective elements are, are going very well. Um, I think, Jenny, do you have an example? I mean, there was an example of, of, of somebody who's grieving. Anyway, so imagine somebody um, who is happy in a sense that I think Jenny would acknowledge. This would be an instance of happiness according to Jenny's analysis or, or, or <coughs> uh particular concept of happiness. Somebody who is happy in large measure because she believes that her beloved child is flourishing when in fact her beloved child has just died. I think that her positive outlook really does almost nothing to make her condition at that time a good one. But. If a person is suffering because she wrongly believes that her beloved child is dead when in fact her beloved child is flourishing hugely, I think that person is in a genuinely bad condition, that person (coughs) is genuinely miserable, um, even though the the important objective condition of her life uh, is is, uh, good. So that's a, that's a different asymmetry from the one that, that Jenny uh, defended. It's, it's closely related to Jenny's, and it's prompted by thinking about hers. I don't know whether it's any good or not, but it's the best I could come up with, and I'll end there. Thanks. <laughs>
0: get straight to the left. I'll be very brief, so I'm sure many of the same things will come up and questions in questions, and I'll have of time for that. Um, I'll just say, uh, so Jeff asked whether my claims about happiness and suffering are conceptual or empirical. I guess the answer is I, I, I'm taking a word, because I needed some word to use, and I'm saying, OK, I'm going to use it this way, to refer to this. I think that the this is real. It's a certain kind of state that you know, exists. Um, and there's empirical work to support these kinds of states. But it does, I don't claim to be using suffering in all the ways that many people use it. So there are things people might think of ordinarily or might call suffering that would not fit my definition. Um, and so that is largely how, when I say that suffering is the next thing he raises is this issue of the compatibility of happiness and suffering. Um, so let's see. We have the guy with the kidney stone who discovers that the woman he loves um, actually loves him. Uh, so he's in a lot of pain, um, and he may even, you know, be having some pretty negative thoughts as well as just the physical pain because, you know, it just feels rotten, and that's what tends to happen. <laughs> um, So, but I don't think he has an entirely, I think physical pain is distinct from uh, what I want to talk about. It often, like for example with chronic pain, will contribute to uh, people developing lots of negative affect as well as pain, and then I think it often leads to states that I would describe using my term, suffering. But I just want to make some distinctions, um, and then Place my emphasis on suffering. So, um, I'm not sure. I would say that, that in the sense of suffering that I defended here, that the guy is suffering. He's on. Um, that seems too intuit, counterintuitive to you. Then we'll just you know divvy up some words somehow. Um, he's. It, it's <coughs> no fun. It, it's rotten uh, to feel that way. Um, similarly. I've tried to, again, happiness is one of these words that people use in many different ways. Sometimes we just use it in a way that sort of refers to a good mood. You're in a happy mood. Or it could be for elation or other kinds of momentary things. I've deliberately tried to move away from that, while still keeping a strong link between happiness and affect, towards a view of happiness as you know an overall positive, evaluative perspective. Um, I don't know enough about that case. So, so really, in a sense, what that case of the person with the kidney stone and the good news about love, um, I think the good news about love may put him in a good mood. Um, I think the kidney stone probably hurts a lot. Um, I'm not sure either is, I know enough about the case to say either that they, I don't think either by itself could constitute suffering or happiness, right? I mean, there's a sense in which he's in a happy mood Um, Is he happy overall? Well, that would depend on how other things are going. Um, Is he suffering in my sense? Well, that also depends on... um, What I do think is is incompatible is to have an overall perspective that is, you know, highly negative at the same time you have one that's highly positive. But you can feel physical pain and be in a good mood and things like that. So I can say more about that later.